Welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. This week, and I'm glad the Lord saw fit to it to bring me here this morning. The history of revival often shows that revival doesn't necessarily begin through a minister, but through ordinary, humble church members, often praying. Perhaps you remember, I've mentioned this before, the great Haystack Prayer Revival, where it was just a bunch of students gathered around the Haystack, praying that the Lord would move among them. So revival is not something that you attend, but it's something that you are a part of. Yes, revivals, as you may know them in the past, where you called the preacher in and he preached a series of messages. Yes, that's a great catalyst for revival. I'm not saying that's not something. But what I'm saying is revival, when God moves among his people, is people getting on their knees and asking God to do something. It's church members gathering together saying, we are part of this. If God's going to revive this church and lead us in the way of everlasting, he must revive me. And so that's what we'll be praying for together. Maybe you're already revived. Maybe you're already on fire saying, God God is doing a great work in my life. He's done things in my life. I'm excited for this. May this fan the flame of revival in your life. And may you be the catalyst of seeing other people experiencing revival in their lives. What are we talking about when we're talking about revival? Let's talk about this again. I I picked up a book this week uh, by Martin Lloyd-Jones called Revival. It's a wonderful book. I guess it's a classic now because I think it was published like in 1987. And so that's like 35 years ago or something or the other, right? And it makes you feel a little bit old. But Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote this book, Revival, and in the foreword of this book, another great theologian, J.I. Packer, says this, Revival means more than converts, enthusiasm, and a balanced budget. Those are all wonderful things. Revival is a new quality of spiritual life that comes through knowing the greatness and nearness of our holy, gracious creator. By the way, Psalm 139 is going to help us to see that. The greatness and the nearness of our Savior. J.I. Packer goes on to say something that in former days, revival would have been called the enlargement of the heart where you're so enamored with the greatness and nearness of God that your heart is enlarged and your heart is revived by that truth. A heart usually starts with a, an enlarged heart usually starts with a deepened sense of the power and authority of God in the preaching of the biblical message. So what are we after? We're trying to get to the source. We're trying to get to the bottom of the well. We're trying to get to life itself, the water, the living water, saying that what we desire above everything is God's presence in our lives. And I say some things sometimes, like we we don't want the programs of the past. Those are all wonderful things. Maybe we will revive some of the programs of the past. And there's no doubt a lot of those programs from the past pointed people to God probably were the catalyst of revival. So I'm not saying those are bad things. I'm trying to move away everything and say what we need is to get after God himself and see his spirit working among them. Don't you desire that? I'm praying the next four weeks we will desire that more. We need to get back to the well, the living water. We can't post on our sign outside, revival, the spirit of God's gonna fall down at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. 
But we can, as Steve Horn says in that revival guide, set the sails for revival. Particularly, we can pray. Particularly, we can repent of our sins. We can pray and we can ask God to do a work among us. This type of revival, this type of reviving, this type of bringing to spiritual life, this type of fanning to flame what God is doing in and among us, this kind requires prayer. Packer, I promise I got past the forward in this book, but J.I. Packer also said in the forward of Revival by Martin Lloyd-Jones, the divine visitation that revives cannot be precipitated by human effort, even though not caring about it and not seeking it, it can effectively quench the spirit. We must be a people who pray and ask God to enlarge in our hearts and bring us to life and put a new spiritual vigor in us. And I don't believe it will happen if we don't pray, if we don't ask the Lord to do it. I remember one time when I, was in, while I was in seminary, I was working at Starbucks, and there was some guys that would come in every afternoon, and oftentimes they would come back after dinner. It was a group of young professionals, and they came to me. It was around Christmas one time and said, hey, we're leaving for dinner. Is there anything we can get for you? And usually I didn't say anything, and they knew I was joking. I had gotten to know them, but they knew I was kind of saying this jokingly. I was like, yeah, I would like a New York strip cooked medium from Char Steakhouse. It's like a high-end steakhouse where it's like 50 bucks a steak, you know, in Jackson, Mississippi, with uh, cream spinach and a load of baked potato. Just kidding, right? Do you know what happened about 8 o'clock that night? I was back in the supply area of Starbucks at some little dinky table eating a New York strip cooked medium with a loaded baked potato and cream spinach or whatever else I asked for. I asked for something bold. Just kidding at the time, just halfway serious. I said, sure. You have not because you asked not. I wonder if that's something that, that's at least something I've been thinking through as a congregation Perhaps we would see God do something better than we could even ask or imagine, Ephesians chapter 3. We would simply humbly ask, God, would you do it? Would you do it? Would you revive us in a way like we've never experienced before? It goes on to say, if there is not repentance, Steve Horn says this in the beginning of this book. That's why I'm quoting it today. You'll see it. If there is not repentance... So if there's not prayer, if there's not repentance, there cannot be revival. Revival will not come without repentance. Confessing, what do we mean by repentance? Confessing and unloading the weight of sin, as Hebrews tells us, that clings so closely to us. Sin is what weighs us down so that we do not run the race as we ought with the freedom that we ought. And so what we're doing is we're dropping the weight. We're throwing it on Christ. You have dealt with this. I am done with this. I'm not going to let the sin weigh me or this church down. We're laying aside and we're running. We're running with freedom. We're running in the way after everlasting. Acts 3, 19 says, repent and return to the Lord that times of refreshing, times of revival might come from the presence of the Lord. This is the history of God's people. You see it in Exodus. Lord, we'll do all that you command. And then we're going to build the golden calf. Remember that in Exodus? God, we'll do everything. We promise. But we lose sight. 
We need to ask the Lord to search us and to know us. We need to pray to the Lord. And we need to be a people of prayer. And we need to be a people of repentance. Now, this doesn't mean we'll see certain results. This isn't like a a gimmick that we're doing to say, God, if we do this, then you'll fill this place up like never before. Maybe. That would be a wonderful thing. That's something I would love to see. But it it will guarantee that we will be known, listen to me good now, as a generation that was seeking the Lord. That here we are, listen to me good, right here and right now, it is our time to run. With a great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, saying, what will the people of Riverside do running the race now? You're running with the baton now. What will it be said of the next generation? Will it be said by the next generation? Man, that was a generation that sought the Lord. Whether we see any type of growth, I would love to see that. I'm praying for that. But even if we don't, that was a faithful generation that burned with white hot passion for the Lord. And maybe we'll see it in the next generation. Maybe the next generation will see it because we got on our face and burned with passion for the Lord in this generation. Do you follow with me? Are we a people who in this generation will remain faithful and seek the Lord above all? Psalm 139. I told you we'd get there. Psalm 139. That's going to be the main passage for our prayer this week. Particularly verses 23 and 24. Lord, search me and know me. Maybe you've heard them before. But Psalm 139 is a passage, passage that will enlarge in our hearts. Just like Packer said. It will enlarge in our heart with the greatness and the nearness. You'll see it as we go through with the greatness and nearness of our God. And it will show us our response to that greatness and nearness is worship and particularly repenting and asking God to search us and know us. So spend all that time saying that to know this is why we're in Psalm 139. This is why we're praying through this this week. Psalm 139. Let's go ahead and take a look. To the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. End of stanza one. So in stanza one, David is telling us, David's probably older at this point. He's learned a lot along the way. So here in Psalm 139, in this first stanza, verses one through six, David is putting before us the glory and the greatness of an all-knowing God. Perhaps you've heard it like this in theology textbooks, textbooks or whatever it might be, an omniscient God, an omniscient God. A God who knows everything. If you could pick a person to know everything about you, who would it be? Does the thought of that scare you a little bit? If someone would know everything about me, when I rise up, when I sit down, and whatever it might be, David says, 
God is like that. He's omniscient, and he says it's very personal. Not, is he, not just is he omniscient that he knows everything and in in ever, but he knows you to the depths. This is quite personal. God knows all, and God knows all of me. Do you hear what he says? When I sit down and when I rise up, he knows every place that you go. He knows every path that you take. You discern my thoughts from afar. Not only does he know where I go, he knows what I think. Can you imagine that? Imagine that for a moment. If you went, this scares me a little bit. If I went through an entire day and someone was able to know everything I thought. (laughs) Not just everything I said, but every thought Every intention behind everything that I said. Would that make you stop a little bit? Say, "Uh uh-oh. He knows our heart, the Bible says. He knows our thoughts. He knows our path, the direction that we are going. He's acquainted, it says in verse 3, with all of our ways. He knows who we are. He knows what we do. He knows what we say. So not only what we think, but actually what comes out of our mouth. That might freak you out a little bit too. If someone heard everything you said, even everything you said under your breath. (laughs) Whether it's to your wife, to your kids, to your coworkers, to your fellow church members, whatever. Everything you said under your breath, he knows. Everything that you thought, he knows. Verse 5, he hymns us in. Some of your translations may say that he, he encircles us behind and before and lay your hand upon me. And this leads us to worship, doesn't it? Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God knows all and he knows us better than we know ourselves. This could be a fearful thing, or this could be a glorious thing, that God knows me that intimately. Think of the application here, that all of our actions, all of our thoughts, everything that we say, every intention, every feeling that we have, he knows it all together. This could be a frightful thing, or this could be a very freeing thing. This may be the moment that we realize how much we are loved in Christ. I think one of our greatest fears is that we would be known and not loved. That someone would figure out who you really are at the depth of you. And say, I'm not dealing with that. I've seen your darkness. I've seen your sin. I've seen your weakness. I don't want to deal with it. Perhaps another big fear is a a fake love. You know what I'm talking about? Someone who loves you but doesn't really know you. The freedom of true love, which hopefully you experience this some if if you're in a, a healthy marriage or whatever that might look like or loved by someone, that they know you, all of you, And love you. All of you. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. 
I'm loved by God. He knows me and he loves me. His steadfast love upholds me. This is glorious, isn't it? No wonder David breaks it. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. This is fantastic. He's all-knowing. God's also all-present. Omnipresent, perhaps you've heard it before. Simply means God is everywhere present. Stanza two. Where shall I go from your spirit? Verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall uphold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. What David is doing now is setting up what you may have heard before as a, as a mirrorism, or it's two opposites that include the whole. If I go to heaven, the highest you can go, and to Sheol, the lowest you can go, God, you are there. Where can I run from your spirit? Nowhere. There's no height nor depth that I can run from your spirit. And then in a very poetic way, I take the wings of the morning. This is the east. And dwell in the other parts of the sea. This is the west. So as far as east is from the west and north, the south, height, the low, there is no place in all creation that I can flee from the presence of the Lord. Even if I go into darkness, I can't flee. Even if I cloak myself in darkness, still I cannot flee because darkness is as light to you. There is no place, no darkness, no depth, no height, nothing, no place, nowhere, no thing where God's presence is not. Again, this could be a frightening thing. If you're running from the Lord, no, you cannot run from the Lord. Jonah found that out, didn't he? If you think you're too far or some place or some area of your life that you think that you can hide from the knowledge or from the presence of the Lord, you cannot. He is with you everywhere. If you think you can cloak yourself in darkness and still walk in sin, you cannot because even that is brought to light in him. The question is not whether or not we will live in his presence, but whether or not we will recognize his presence acknowledge his presence, rejoice in his presence, enjoy his presence, and live as though we are living before the face of God himself because we are. Live as though God is watching. This could be a terrible thing or could this be a glorious thing. Listen to what David says. No matter where I go, look at verse 10. Even there you shall lead me. And your right hand shall uphold me. Still, no matter where I am, you're always leading me. You're always protecting me. It is a glorious thing that we cannot go outside of his presence. This is a glorious thing. Stanza two. God is all powerful. Excuse me. God is all present. God is all knowing. Stanza number three, God is all powerful. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. What he's getting after here is the power of God. The power to create life itself. Even in the womb, at the moment of conception, God is creating life. 
And it's very personal. Not only does God create life, but he has created you in his image and in a very particular way. He's, he's knitted you together like a master craftsman. Like someone sewing together this glorious tapestry, he has made you just so. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret or in the womb. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. So not only has he made you just so, he has ordained your life just so. Every one of them, every day written in your book is not beyond the power of God. Is not catching him by surprise. He's not reacting to what your life is. He's not reacting to who you are. He knows exactly who you are. God can't do anything with me. Yes, he made you like that. God can't do anything with my situation. Yes, he knew this before you were formed. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that freeing to know the love of God? To know the power of God that he has written all our days. Verse 16. Your eyes saw my, in your book were written every one of them. The days were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. God formed you just so. God has a purpose for your life. A particular purpose for your life. This brings us to worship. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. You can feel his revival, can't you? The enlargement of his heart with the truth about who God is and how personal that truth is. Can you feel it? His enlarging, how precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than sand. I awake and I am still with you. He responds to these precious truths in worship. He's reflecting like never before as he comes probably closer to the end of his life on the greatness and the nearness of God and his nearness is his good. To have an all-knowing God that knows us to the depths. To have an all-present God who is always with us. To have an all-powerful God who formed us, who leads us, who guides us, who has a purpose for us, a particular purpose, in a particular way, in a particular time. This is glorious. So much so, it seems like this psalm takes a strange turn. Look at verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. What? This one's caused me some struggle this week. Seems like an imprecatory psalm. He's, he's praying disaster and judgment upon God's enemies. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do not I loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Didn't Jesus say, love your enemies? Is this like different Old Testament God? No, God doesn't change, by the way, right? You understand that there's not an Old Testament God and then like a New Testament. He's all, always has been the same, character and all. What David is saying here, in light of worship and who God is, I want nothing to do with sin. He's saying that in this hatred toward those who are committing evil, that he hates evil himself. He rejects, he opposes 
all of those who oppose the Lord. He is not with them. What he's beginning to, as we'll say in just, just a second, he knows the depths of his heart. He knows if he doesn't hate sin, he might find himself walking in the counsel of the wicked or standing in the path of sinners or sitting in the seat of scoffers. But as it is, his delight's in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates every day and night, and he desires to be a stream by living water, bearing fruit in season. And so if he knows he messes around with sin, things that God hates, he's in trouble. I oppose sin. That's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to hate injustice. It's a wonderful thing to oppose the things that God opposes. And oftentimes, when we pray for revival, I think we stop there. God, you are glorious. Do something about them. Have you thought that before? If God would change something out there, then we would really have a chance to experience the presence of God. If God would change them, if God would change that whatever, and, and yeah, 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 a government that doesn't take Psalm 139 seriously, yeah, that's a concern. For sure. But it doesn't stop there. David doesn't think he's better than evil people. He himself is a sinner and saved by grace alone. It doesn't stop there. He knows that the heart is deceitful above all things. He knows his heart, and therefore he then asked the Lord, Lord, search my heart. As one person once said, that if we want revival, in one sense we need to Draw a circle around ourselves. That's why that me is circled in this picture. I didn't come up with that graphic, by the way. That's graphic I'm using. Draw a circle around me and say, God, if revival is to come, it's got to start, start right here. Yeah, it's a glorious thing to worship. It's a glorious thing to hate God, things that God hates, but, but it must start here. I know my heart. So God, search me. So do you see where this prayer goes after we've seen all these verses before? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's easy to pray, Lord, search the world and do your thing. That we can get behind. God, search me and do your thing. It's a little bit more difficult. Steve Horn says in that prayer, God, I believe that the churches, our churches and our nation have no problems that humility before God and his word would not fix immediately. Knowing the greatness and nearness of God enlarges our hearts with a sense, a deepened sense of his power and authority that we say, God, you know me, you're with me, you have formed me, you are all powerful. Therefore, Lord, search me and know me. What will it be said of our generation? What will it be said of Riverside Church from this time to whatever time God might see fit that 
we are here. What sort of outpouring of a spirit will we see? At the very least, or the very most, may it be said that that was a people that sought after the Lord in all things. And God did a work in them that the next generation is still bearing fruit from. Because they prayed for the Lord to search them and know them. And so you see what he's after here. This is surrender. It's not just inviting the Lord to search us as if he needs an invitation to search us. He already knows us. This is saying, God, I'm getting on the same page as you. Search me. No, I surrender. Because in surrender, there is freedom. In surrender, I get to confess my sins and know that you're faithful and just to forgive them and cleanse me from all unrighteousness, 1 John chapter 1, because I am cleansed with the blood of Jesus and I want to run in the way everlasting with no weights holding me down. So this week, let's come boldly to the throne of grace, to the all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God, And let's do so on the merit of his son, Jesus. And let's do so confidently because Jesus has dealt with our sin on the cross and has set us free from sin. And let's run in that freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we pray that in the name of Jesus, with great confidence in the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from our sin, that if we confess our sins, he'll be faithful and just to forgive us. Would we pray, Lord, is there anything, anything in me that you need to expose so that it may be dealt with, that I might lay the weight aside and experience life in your name like never before and run in the way everlasting? Let's pray.